Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasnow and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show, for sharing the show. If you can, get on Apple Podcasts and subscribe or follow us on Spotify. You can also follow the Instagram, One, or find me at Eric Krasnow on Instagram or any social media outlets to find out more about what we're doing. And uh, we have a lot of cool guests coming up. We've had some amazing guests on the show, and today is no different. We've got the great Corey Wong on the show. This guy's not only a great musician, great songwriter, great arranger, but he's one of those guys that has just such a huge volume of output and so many cool projects that he's doing. He's always in the studio. Um, I've seen his live show, it's amazing. And he's just one of those guys I really look up to who kind of uses the modern day technology and the internet to really do cool things. Um, He's put out eight albums, I believe, in 2020, and all of them are great. I've been kind of going down the rabbit hole listening to all the different projects that he's got. Obviously a part of the group Wolfpack, who are such an innovative group. Um, So it, it excites me to see younger musicians, he's younger than me at least, uh, really push the envelope and uh, also make great music that I like. It's soulful, it's funky, uh, his personality is very prevalent in the music, it's fun. And uh, So anyway, it was great to have him on the show and just to get to know him a little bit better. We've hung out a bunch of times, we've played together on various festivals and, and shows. But in this conversation, we definitely took it uh, a step deeper and I got to know him as a family man, as a band leader. And we got a little bit into also how he's kind of grown as an artist and built his brand, which was definitely interesting. And I learned a lot from this conversation. So I'm excited to get into that. First, I'd like to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me make this show and they've got a lot of other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. And before we get into the interview, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. An amazing composer, arranger, band leader, and one of my favorite current day funk guitarists. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Corey Wong. It's been so fun, like just catching up on what you're doing. Cause I'm always, I've always like listened to bits and pieces of what you're doing, but I dove into like your Spotify and holy shit. I mean, <laughs> holy shit. Because I consider myself a fairly motivated person, but when I saw what you've been doing in the last few years, I was like, I need to step my game up. Holy shit. Um, so many releases, so many collaborations, so many like... It's it's really cool because what you've been doing um, with other artists is bringing them into your zone, but also it, it's not like your zone is this tiny thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, sure. But I can tell that it's your music. Like you don't try to uh, make a Chris Teeley song. You pull him into like this groove funk thing, which was so cool. By the way, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's you playing acoustic guitar. Did you play that yeah. acoustic solo? Yeah. That, that solo's insane. Oh, thanks. And man. I was that like, because I haven't really heard you take that many like out front solos. And I was yeah. like, holy shit, there's like jazz lines in there and all sorts of shit. Um, 
But yeah, I and I dug into the Kimbra track, but the Satriani track having him play over like a soulful Ooh. groove was insane. Dude. Like that was like so game changer. Like I, I've never heard him do anything like that. So uh, thank you for pulling yeah. him into that zone. Cool, and man. it was so cool hearing the Chris Teeley play over like funk grooves. Um, these are all people I'm I'm a fan of. Yeah. So to hear them in that in that zone has been has been really cool um so you you have a studio at home i'm assuming yeah i've got a space at home and then down the road from me a friend of mine that i've known for 15 years he used to own a studio i used to work out of his studio but now he's more in the video game got it not video game as in like video games but yeah he's in the video world of course Um, he has his dope studio at his house it's like a separate wing of his house yeah and i get to go i can go there kind of whenever and he and i are just such close friends that you know we work on each other's stuff so if i need something a little more that looks a little more nice i'll go to his place and it has actual nicer gear but i have a nice setup in my house in my basement so cool but you know it's just one of those things where i show up to work and just try to make it happen, yeah. And are you tracking the drums like at his place or at your place? Or how do you have you like in quarantine status? Have you been sending stuff around to different people or in quarantine? I've just been sending, yeah, people are recording remotely. Yeah. So most of the stuff that I've done through quarantine, Patar, the guy that plays drums in my touring band, he records at his place in Nashville, or Steve Gould will record at his place in Got Phoenix. It. And yeah, people will just kind of record wherever they're at because most people at this point, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that everybody's had to get their recording, like their yeah. remote rigs figured yeah. out. Oh, yeah. And there's, there's just no choice. So everybody, I'm just sending tracks back and forth. And that's been kind of cool. It's been good. I've been the call guy for a lot of drummers. They're like, all right, so what mics should I get? And what pre's and da, 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 da. It's, I've, I, so yeah. now, now I have my little list. I'm like, okay, so you're going to need this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's cool. Cause I mean, I've been making records during this time, which has been nice, you know, like it's, I, yeah. I, I, I made a record that's almost done that, you know, for me, um, and I want to ask you this question too, like mm-hmm. touring and making records at the same time can be challenging. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, you're here, you're there, you're here, you're there. And it's, it's hard for me. And it's also like writing lyrics and doing that and, and getting my songwriting game, like really happening while I'm on the road is hard. Cause then I have to get I got home. I need to decompress. And, um, yeah. but during this time it's been, nice to kind of dig in you know it's it's not always easy to find inspiration when you're like sitting at home uh yeah. but i'm curious like in the past like how did you know you i know you were on the road with wolfpack and with your band how do you kind of fit the songwriting and the recording into that well if i'm on the road a lot of times if there's like two days off yeah. i'll try to find a studio space where um where i can go and just get in and record a few ideas. But if I'm at home, the recording process is normally, all right, we're going to go in for these two days. Let's record a ton of stuff yeah. and then sift it out from there. And the process for me is different than with Wolfpack. Like with Wolfpack, the last couple of years, the albums have been made in tandem with our touring. So, you know, to some people, they look, a lot of people think that, oh man, 
Wolfpack's got so much stuff going on, man. You're so busy. Like, you guys are all over the place. It's like, well, there's a lot of stuff happening on the internet. But realistically, our commitment is like 25 days at most out of the year. Right. That we, that we commit to the band. And Fearless Flyers adds another 10 days out of the year. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, basically 30 days of the year. That is our job for Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers, right. at least Dart and Jack and I. Uh, but, you know, the, the recording process with that has, just because we all live in different cities, Jack has kind of put me in charge of finding a studio space. He'll say, okay, I want to, rec- when we're in Denver doing Red Rocks, let's tag a couple days on the front end. Yep. So I found, you know, we went to this place called Decibel Garden yeah. and recorded there for a few days before our last Red Rocks thing, or in LA, uh, he actually organized recording in Mike Viola's shed. Okay. And then um, in New York, in Brooklyn, when we did live from here, we stayed an extra couple days and recorded at this little studio. And, you know, so it's just fitting that sort of step. We did some recording in Austin, Texas, when we did Austin City Limits. Right. So Jack kind of, got me hip to that idea of oh smart yeah when we're on the road let's just since we're all together let's track and so that's how Wolf has done the thing with fearless flyers we decide on it i do a bunch of writing jack does a bunch of writing or we'll conceptualize some things and then go into the studio but having demos ahead of time at least for this last album and we just cut three days in a row my, uh, my personal albums are much more scattered as yeah. far as my recording because I'm kind of always writing and recording. And sometimes it's just taking a look at my phone and listening to voice memos. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, this thing is cool. And then start jamming on it at soundcheck. And because most of my stuff is instrumental, yeah. it's so much easier to have a higher output For sure. of content because the message gets across through the, the writing of the music and then the production, whatever clothes that I decide to dress it in, yeah. you know, that's the stylizing and the producing of it is just, all right, what kind of outfit do we want to put on this mannequin or whatever? So that, that's, then, yeah, I want to ask you about that because it's interesting that you say you got, well, I, for your solo stuff, I've got, it's kind of a two-part question because with sure. Wolfpack and with Fearless Flyers, there's definitely a sound. Yeah. Um, and that's what, um, what leads me to this next question, which is like, who's, how do you guys maintain that sound while being in all these different studios? Cause I would have guessed by hearing your records, like, okay, they have a studio and they're like making records. And I, I know there's various, you guys have been involved in like creating plugins and you guys are definitely all involved <laughs> in, yeah. uh, in, um, mixing and you guys are all very technical people. So, sure. um, how do you guys maintain that sound? Is Jack doing a lot of the mixing? Yeah. Yeah. Jack is the mixing engineer. Got it. And he's the one with the vision of the thing. But also, you know, we're pretty consistent in the instruments we use, the way that Jack and Theo tune the drums, and the way that they play the drums. They play them really light. Yep. And, and then that way it allows the compressors to do to a work, little more yeah. work to, to make it feel like it's up front, you know. Yeah. And, the guitars and bass are all recorded just DI. Yeah. The keyboards are normally recorded DI or a couple SM57s on the piano rather right. than some, you know, super expensive condenser mics. Right. So because a lot of the 
the style of engineering is consistent, and obviously the players and the vision for the thing is pretty consistent. That helps Jack in the mixing process. Right. To not have to worry about, oh, this, we use a twin reverb on this thing, and then we use a super reverb on this one. It's like, no, I, he's literally just taking my DI, and I have an amp in the room that's really quiet just so I can hear it enough myself because we don't record with headphones. Yeah. But for the Wolf and the Flyers thing, that's, I mean, I would attribute that all to Jack, his vision and his getting the sound. And yeah, I mean, obviously each of us as individual players contribute our sound and our voice musically to it. But as far as the Sonics, Jack's vision in that is, is very, very clear, which is cool. It's great. Right. right. And so in, in the recording of your solo stuff, um, are you doing like kind of laying down the basics to a click track or something and building from there? Is that usually the process or does it, are you in the room with the guys? I'm sure, I'm sure it changes, but what is your, what is your ideal situation? I don't know what my ideal is. (laughs) That's a good question, but my typical process. So Wolf has never recorded with headphones on, never recorded I to a I love click. that. That's how Soul yeah. Live prefers to record. Oh, really? And my cool. favorite recordings of us are like that, where everything's bleeding. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's all about the live take and going for that live take. And it also kind of eliminates the like, oh, let me like go back and fix this little thing or let me do that. It's, it's just about getting the parts yeah. actually right, A, and also not nitpicking and letting the vibe emanate. Yeah. Because the thing is, if you if you get too microscopic, it it really starts to pull the vibe out of the music sometimes. But yeah, yeah and it's also just I'm just so much more inspired as a player without headphones, you know. Yeah. My solo thing, I do pretty much everything to a click. Yeah. A lot of times because I do I mean, I don't mind either one. I'm fine yeah. either way. Yeah. Because um, I grew up doing both, so it's fine. But my solo stuff, I will normally make demo mock-ups for my own sake of, does this form feel right? Does this thing feel right? And just to have a little more preparedness going into the studio. Right. Because if I want to knock out six songs in a day, I'm going to have the demos. I'm going to send them to everybody. And my... My email I always send is, all right, let's be prepared on these songs, gig ready. Right. Don't show up to the session not knowing the form, not knowing the vibe, the tempo, the feel of the tune. Of course, yeah. we'll work out individual parts and where we all lay into the thing. But make sure you, you know this tune so that way our starting point has a lot of common ground. And if I say, let's stair step up twice in the bridge, you know exactly where I'm talking about. Yeah. And there's some, you know, there's common ground there. So I like doing that, but also sometimes I've had good luck just sending out a voice memo and then just jamming on something and then we play it in the room right, and kind right. of figure it out. So I don't know which, I think for me, my personality type is that I need both yeah. because as much as I like being a free spirit in certain realms. I like being a free spirit within a playground. Yeah. You know, like I don't want to just go into the, the wide, vast 
anything is possible all the time. Yeah. Of course, that's sometimes really fun to get into. But yeah. sometimes I just want somebody to put a fence and and then I'm going to explore every inch of that playground to see how much fun and how much we can get into or what the limitations are of the thing. For me, right. I, I just sometimes need those barriers in my mind to be able to to kind of stretch out and, and figure something out. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been trying to create those barriers in the recording process too, which is hard because I always know that all those options are there. But yeah. uh, trying to limit your options a little bit can be sometimes the most creative option. <laughs> you know what I totally. mean? Totally. Um, so uh, specifically, I wanted to ask you about design, the track with Kimbra. Um, sure. Who played drums on? I'm mean, a couple selfish questions. Uh, who played yeah. drums on that track? That's Pitar Yanich. That's Pitar. Holy shit! Yep, killing track. And did you? Was that done pre-COVID? Nope, that was done during COVID. And you sent him the track. So, well, actually, I did. We did like a little demo mock-up on the road. Yeah. Where I just had this bass groove, and he and I got in our friend's storage unit. Actually, so the one song that was recorded pre-COVID was Smooth Move. Okay. With the one I did with Tom Mish. We did yeah, that yeah. in London. When I was on the road, we had a day off. We recorded that tune with Tom, but to kind of get ourselves get the studio situated, we recorded a couple little demos for some songs that I had written. One was the tune Lily Pad on the on the new album. Yeah. And the other one was Design, which was going to be an instrumental tune kind of a horn feature tune. Yeah. Um, so we, we did a little mock-up there. And then when quarantine happened, I just started tearing stuff apart on that track and mix, mix, mixing and matching things. So I ended up playing pretty much everything on the track and I used his demo drums and then I just sent it back to him and he played down the got drum it, track. And do you sometimes program drums in your stuff initially to write yeah, to a it? A lot of yeah. times I'll program to a specific groove or a specific feel. Yeah. You know, if I want the or you know, if it has the upbeat thing or if it has a strong downbeat, I normally try to try to give some of that sort of feel thing, but then also leave enough room for some interpretation of there. Cause I don't want to completely micromanage everybody's thing. Right. And uh, do you ever start with a drum groove or is it generally you start on guitar or bass? Um, a lot of times I'll have an idea of a tempo or a vibe that I want to accomplish with a song. Yeah. And sometimes that means just setting up a little drum loop. Right. Getting a guitar idea down. Right. And then getting an actual drum groove that that really fits for, specifically for that guitar idea. And then I'll develop the guitar. Then I'll record the guitar idea on top of that or whatever. So sometimes right. it's eh, simple drums, figure out this guitar thing. All right. Uh, you know, craft drum programming that will specifically fit this thing and then do the guitar part that feels like it really matches it. Right, right, right. And your demos are involved, it seems. Cause like that song, I was listening back to it uh, and, uh, I was like, man, there is so much going on here. And I was imagining you like making this during quarantine. And I'm like, okay, because, you know, I've been doing this too. And I've been finding different ways to, you know, really 
make it my demos like work like a band, you know, where there's transitions and tempo yeah. changes, and it's it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that. Yeah. It's it's been, but it's been kind of like exercising a new muscle. So I was like curious. Well, actually, there's a way you can see. Let me look on my. If you go on my Instagram, I put out this like Instagram challenge. Yeah. For that tune on July seventh. Okay. And you can hear it's a couple guitars, bass and drums, and then a little couple little keyboard parts. And I, and some people did some overdubbing and that was actually exactly what I used. And there was this little bridge section that was kind of this, uh, one hot minute era, chili peppers sort of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was hearing a Kitas style thing and then I said, you know what, this, I don't think this is actually a horn tune. I think this is a vocal tune. Kimber's one of my favorite artists in the world. Yeah, I just hit her up her too, yeah. and sent it to her. She's like, oh my gosh, this is dope. Let's do it. Come to LA, like meet me in LA and let's write the tune together. So basically what you hear on that little Instagram post is what I had going into it, which is just kind of a simple song structure with the groove, a couple of the ideas, the stair-stepping and energy arc, the yeah, dynamic yeah, yeah. arc of the tune. And then she had some suggestions like, ah, this bridge section doesn't feel like it, like it advances the song to me. Let's, yeah. let, let's try a couple other ideas for, for a different type of momentum. So I came up with some other parts right there on the spot, and we were writing and recording the vocal simultaneously. Like at the same time we were writing it, we were yeah. recording it. And then... I added some other stuff later. So the, yeah. the original demo, I, it was good enough. I knew it was good enough to be a final thing. Cause sometimes your demos are crappy. Sometimes your demos it's like, I don't know, man, it just sounds dope. Let's just use it. Yeah. And, um, so I knew the demo rhythm section stuff was good. Okay. Now Kimber's got all her stuff on it. Yeah. What's some other ear candy? What's some other kind of guitaristic stuff that I can put in there? And what's some other, because I, I love horn sections, so yeah, yeah. I wanted to add a bunch of extra horn things. So the horns were added last. The horns the are insane th- on this track, by the oh, way. That's I know. Why, that's what I meant to, uh, that was my next thing I wanted to get into, is is who's arranging those horns, and where are you are recording and mixing, and is that, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, so for that, uh, Michael Nelson, he's okay. the leader of the Hornheads. They were Prince's horn section for years okay okay and he was working a lot with prince at the end of his life too so um insane horn arranger and just happens to be this cat that when i was growing up i would i would get called for the same gigs as him yeah and when i was like i grew up in minneapolis so there are so many times hundreds of times where i would get the call for a gig and i was literally the only one on stage who didn't play for Prince at some point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, when I'm 20 years old, 22 years old, all this. So it was a great school and also just happened to be this guy who's a, a, who became a good friend of mine. And we had this little racquetball club going happens to be like one of the dopest horn arrangers in the world. Yeah. Anyway. So one of the cool things that he does is he can take this track rhythm section thing is all done. The vocals are all done. I added my guitar stuff. He takes a look at it. All right. He asked me, do you have any specific horn lines or specific things you're looking for? I said, all right, Kate, yes, here's some lines that I want in these spots. Here's the energy I'm looking for. I want a ryth- highly rhythmic 
uh, high rhythmic density on this section. I want, I want it to feel like two things intertwining with my guitar on this and then just building up and then you guys take over from my guitar. My guitar yeah. should be the focus here, you guys in the background, and then all of a sudden you just kind of take off and, and pick up where my guitar thing left off. And basically what he does, he's listening to the, he, so he'll do that sort of thing. And then also, you know, the drum fills that are being played, he'll arrange horns to make it feel like Patar is this genius that's getting all these horn hits, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the the horns are actually written to some of the guitar ah, fills or the cool. bass fill. Yeah. And it's a really fun thing because, you know, it, it all of a sudden makes everybody sound like, oh my gosh, these guys are killing this arrangement. Yeah. But really it's, it's the arrangement that's making the production as a whole feel great. And sometimes we'll, we'll discuss things like, okay, this line here, just make, make that feel like something iconic. Make right, that feel right. signature. You know, where, where, where I'm doing this thing with the drums, I want you to do it with us. And then playing it live, like the drummer feels superhuman. Because when you hit the toms, it's like, bet, 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 it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, when uh, we would write, like, early lettuce stuff, Deitch was always like, I need to feel superhuman. Like, that's that was like the horns. He needed to feel those hits with the horn section. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting uh, writing it backwards, <laughs> but yeah, you know, totally. that's, that's really cool that, that he like, that, that it happened that way. But so much of that is like a big band thing, right? You know, you look at yeah, big totally. band drummers catching the hits, yeah. you know, and then it's, but it's also what's kind of nice about doing it backwards is that sometimes when the, when the hits are written into the arrangement already, what some of us as as rhythm section players do is we go, all right, the hits are coming, the hits are coming. Bam, bam, ba, da, 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 da. Yeah, you know, it's much, like, yeah. whoa, we made it. Yeah, it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, just hint at the hits, man. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. you got to do is just, yeah, you got to just yeah. kind of get them. Or just play right through them, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know. Yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm curious how you linked up with him and, and the whole like Prince crew. Um, you know, how did you get into that little scene there? There's this club called Bunkers and there's a Sunday, Monday night gig that was happening for 25 years or something. Uh, yeah, I went there after one of our gigs once and they were all playing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spot where a lot of touring musicians will come after their gigs on a Sunday or Monday. It's actually where I met the cats from Wolfpack because I was playing in that band on Sunday, Mondays. Oh, cool. And... You know, again, the the drummers Michael Bland and Sonny Thompson's a bass player who were the yeah. new power generation rhythm yeah, section. Yeah, I know Sonny. So we did gigs with yeah. Sonny, and he he, oh, he, cool. he came out to some soul live gigs a few times over the years. Wow. He's such a character, man. So cool. Oof. Yeah, yeah, he's my favorite bass player. He loved Neil. He'd always like stand behind Neil, and be like, ah. I I just kind of got into the scene because those were the cats around. It's yeah. not like I really sought that out, and honestly, I didn't. I, it's so naive of me, but I just didn't understand the global and large scale impact that Prince had on the world mm. until after he died, honestly. Yeah. Because for me, I was growing up in Minneapolis. He's just, it's just the Minneapolis sound. It's like yeah. everybody around is Prince alumni or, you know, played sax on this Prince album or toured with this thing or, you know, 
Oh, yeah, we were Princess Realms. Oh, check this out, man. This is us on Leno playing this trio thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. And like I said, so many times it was just bands where I was, I was, I was basically filling the role of Prince's guitar in a lot of these bands where people were doing the Minneapolis thing. And I just had to, to learn how to lay in the cut the right way. Right. You know, right. according to these guys. So with Michael, the horn arranger, we were on some of the same gigs together. We ended up doing a bunch of even jobbing gigs together. These weird, random variety band things. Yep. yep. And, and then other things like we, we were in a thing where we we were backing up Gene Simmons, you know, and we were in this thing where we were backing up, um, I don't know, a bunch of a bunch of random artists for you know these um, big galas or something, you know, uh, fundraising events sometimes that would happen in Minnesota also, or just some Easter celebration at some church, you know, it's just they get the cats in town to play, yeah, and and then Michael and I just our personalities. Uh, really mesh well together. We have a good energy match as far as, you know, the, uh, the way that we get excited about music, the way we talk about music and eventually just started working together a little bit. And, you know, it's fun because in, in my, in my solo band, kind of half of us are the younger cats. Half the guys are the generation above us. Right. And it creates a cool thing where we give them a new energy and like they, they put, it pulls this exciting thing out of them that they haven't had for the, some of the, some of them in the last 10 years or something. Right. And they, they bring us to a new level of legit and they, their standard of excellence that they hold on themselves and the standard of excellence that they want all of us to hold is the same one that Prince held. Right. right. Which is, you know, just getting all the nuances right, getting all the arrangements exactly right, but also leaving room for the moment and understanding the moment, understanding, you know, what, what is being asked, not just burying your head in the music, but also the entertainment side of yeah. what we do, which is a fun thing to have. And yeah, it's cool because, you know, we learn a lot from, you know, I know you know this as well from playing with cats older than you, oh, playing yeah. with cats younger than you. I think it's an important thing, you know, in, I've always thought you need to have somebody who's mentoring you. You need to have somebody, a group of peers, and you need to have somebody that you are a mentor to. So that way, that three-way river of knowledge continues to go down and, you know, it helps you grow because you're learning from, from cats older than you. You're experiencing it with the people around you, your peers, and then, you're also sharing that with people that are coming up. And then yep. what ends up happening is the community is made up of people from all different backgrounds, all different, you know, in every, in every sense of all different backgrounds. And uh, it's, it's a really fun thing. And putting that band together, I've been curious about that. Um, Cause it kind of seemed to me that, I heard about you and then the next thing I like saw you were playing with like a you know 15 piece band and like selling out <laughs> theaters and my my manager Ben was like check this out and he sends me a video Actually, there's a little time before I, I, I met you and, and knew about you before this a little while, a little while, but sure. not that far after he sends me a video 
of you guys with like a full horn section and like a screen behind you and like this production. Because I was getting ready to go out on tour and I was trying to figure out how many people to bring and da da da. And I'm always I'm one of those guys that's overthinking that stuff. I'm like I need a yeah. smaller band and I need I don't want to do this and and he's like check this out and it just blew my whole thing. <laughs> I had many questions about it. I was like how how's he doing that? How like how does how does anyone come right out out of the gate and do that? Of course. You probably weren't coming right out of the gate and doing that. I'm sure there was some history behind that. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about, like, A, like, investing in your show. Because I think that's, I get a lot of people asking me, and a lot of people listen to the show, they're musicians, like, do I, you know, because right out the gate, I think it's important to have a great show. And sometimes you Mm -hmm. have to invest in that time-wise, money-wise, creatively, uh, so I wanted to ask a couple things: prepping for the tours, putting the band together, um, and like, were you? Uh, did you always think, okay, I need to have the horns, I need to have the whole thing um, before you? Have you always like kind of had that big band uh, sound in mind? There's a couple little runs that I did with a four-piece, just a rhythm section, guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards, and that's fine. That's cool. I don't mind carrying more weight as a guitar player or having the other guys. I think the keyboard player likes it more because he gets to solo more often when it's just a four piece. Right. And you know, I get I solo more when it's a four piece too, for better or worse. I, you know, I, I'm fine either way. I'm indifferent about it. But for me, I've always thought if I'm going to do a two hour show, I don't want anybody to feel like I don't want anybody to leave feeling like, all right, I've had enough guitar for the week. Right. Or like, all right, I've had enough keyboard for the week. Yeah. You know, I'm ready to hear, you know, even, or even 60 minutes into the show, I don't want somebody to feel like they've had too much of one thing, right. you know? So I think it's fun to have a big band because my show and the way that I play, you know, I can, I can do guitar solos, I can play lead stuff, but I feel like what's most magnetic about what I do is more in the rhythm vein and more in the lead rhythm vein. Yeah. And I'll do some solos. I'll do some of that, whatever. But I feel like there's plenty of other guys that do the lead thing, that do the guitar solos thing, and that is what's so magnetic about them. Right. And a lot of people have all of that. But I felt like, okay, I think I'm going to try to stay more in my own thing by really mining the thing that's magnetic, you know, if I, if I have this piece of gold that's really magnetic, I'm going to try to mine it down to its purest form. And in order for me to do that, I feel like I need a bigger band because then I can showcase what I bring to the table more. And I don't care if people leave thinking I'm the greatest guitar player in the world, especially because, you know, I, I'm the writer, I'm the producer, I'm the band leader of the thing. It, it's not necessarily all about my guitar playing. Although for right. some people it is great. That's fine. So, you know, as far as bringing out a horn section, I've always wanted that because I've loved that sound. And it, I just feel like it, it represents what I want to say and what I want to do musically in a better way than I could with just a four piece. And, you know, like you're saying, how do you do that from the start? I have pretty much been doing it from the start. I think the reality is, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm fine to talk numbers. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But, you know, if if I was you know, paying the cat, you know, if I'm making $800 to go do this gig in Durango, Colorado or wherever it is, yeah. 
It's like, oh man, how am I gonna bring a seven piece band out and pay everybody, you know, I, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna pay everybody, I'm just gonna split it and pay everybody 80 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever, because I just don't feel comfortable asking my friends to fly out to, yeah. to do this run and whatever. If we were 20 years old, all of us would be all about it, but I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that at this point. And I have other ways, you know, I have other sources of income from my other bands or my albums yeah, or something. So of it's like, all right, I'm going to pay you your gig rate or a rate that we both feel is really fair. Yeah. And I'll just eat the cost knowing that further down the line, all right, this next gig paid two grand or five or $10,000. And those things end up evening out. And then, okay, now things are starting to make a little more money. I can give the band a raise or whatever. And right. then it's, all right, I did, you know, three or four tours where I didn't really make any money, you know? And that's, I was fine with that because I knew it was growing my profile and right. I knew about the bigger picture. And I'm totally cool investing in myself and putting my own chips on the table to bet on me as an artist if I really believe in what I'm doing and if I really feel like I'm being honest with my music and honest with the audience because what I want to build is a long-lasting thing yeah. and I want the people that are around me to feel like they're being taken care of, to feel like they're being valued and also that they're having a good time too. You know, so yeah. there's been times where we were kind of roughing it a little more in the van and I've never gone out in a tour bus. Maybe that helps, yeah. you know? yeah. But, you know, I was looking at doing a tour bus, my last tour. It's like, so we're looking at basically an extra $2,500 at the end of the day yeah. per day. Yeah. Ah. I know. And I don't, ah. I don't really prefer it. If it's it, like with Soul Live, it was nice when it was like the three of us and like a small crew on a tour bus. Cause it feels like more homey. But if you're, if it's tight in that tour bus and you're like living on it, man, it's, I'd yeah. much rather drive and be in a hotel and have a little space and you know, yeah, it's the tour bus can be rough. Yeah. And expensive. Yeah. The thing I like about a tour bus is that you double down on your sleep. So it's not yeah, like yeah, you wake up and you're there. Yeah. yeah and you're there. Yeah, it's, so sometimes, yeah. yeah, we're in the van and it's a five hour drive and then we got to do a three hour sound check. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have an hour break for dinner and the opener plays and then we got to do our set. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes a, after a while, it can take a toll on you. You know this. Yeah, that'll grind. But, that'll grind on your soul. <laughs> yeah. But then it's like, if you, okay, if I want to do a, a 10 piece band plus th four crew people, now we're talking two buses. I know. That's, that's insane. That's, you know, yeah, that's then, a lot. Then you got to be playing like sheds or, or huge big theaters and stuff like that. Well, I think it's important, you know, investing like not not a lot of people have that vision to see the big picture and invest in that. So I yeah. think it's it's crucial that you've done that. And then also your your output obviously is like incredible. And I think um Something that, you know, I think about a lot is like in the digital age, because I kind of came up in, you know, record, the record deal era, sure. you know, early on. Did Soul Live have a, uh, were you guys, who were you guys with? We were on Blue Note, which was Capital, you know, and then EMI in Japan. So, I mean, it was, it was a major record deal, you know, back then. Yeah. And we got tons of, you know, there, there was a lot of financial support 
for the band. And it's funny because I, I look back at it and we took it for granted, or I took it for granted to a certain degree. Because sure. um, now thinking about it, like all of the press and like we had billboards and various places and we had like all, we were in all these magazines all the time. And now to get that is like so hard uh, and yeah. so expensive that, uh, you know, I think back on it, I'm like, you know, we were really fortunate. And then we also kind of got out of our deal right when it was good to be independent. So we kind of, our timing was kind of good in a way, cool. because then we got out of it and we still had an audience. Um, but, you know, and it's so hard now because there's just a sea of music at yeah. all times coming at you. But I think, you know, you know, seeing the big picture and believing in yourself and, 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 staying consistent with your output, um, it seems to be the way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I also think that in the age of social media, someone like you, that's not necessarily like a, a lead singer and kind of, we get a little bit of an insight into your world. And I think that's mm -hmm. alluring. You know what I mean? I like, like when I follow you, when I see your Instagram posts, I feel like, you know, like, and we are homies, but I feel like even yeah. if I didn't know you, we'd be kind of be homies. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'd be like, oh yeah, like Corey Wong, he's like doing his thing and he's got his horns and he's leading this band and people get to see you doing that and in your element, which I, I don't, I think there were people that were well known for that in the past, but I think the timing and the way that you're playing the internet and playing the music is like, um, really interesting and inspiring, um, to people that are artists that aren't just singers, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's it's a unique thing, and I feel very, well, I, I have been, to a certain ex extent, pretty strategic with it, yeah. but very lucky in a lot of ways. But also, I think I've just been pretty relentless in my vision. You know, some people, they feel the obligation, oh, I didn't post today, yeah. oh, I didn't post this week, I gotta post something. So then they just put something up yeah. because they feel obligated to post something for me I don't care if I didn't post something for a month it's fine if if I just wasn't feeling it for me right. I feel like for something to be honest and a good representation and for it to feel sticky it should be something it you should only do stuff that you're actually excited about because I think that translates and nowadays everybody's on the internet all the time yeah so what that does is it makes people really smart and we are smart as consumers and we're smart as absorbers of content and we're smart as absorbers of art because I think you, you end up knowing if you follow somebody long enough, ah, that feels like an obligatory post or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, or, yeah. you know, I, I try to only do something that I'm actually excited about or something that I'm actually feeling like is, is cool or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that helps, but it's a hard, weird thing. I don't know yeah. why certain things take off and certain things don't. Um, I certainly feel blessed in the fact that people are interested in what I'm doing. So cool. Right. Right. Yeah. I was talking, I actually spoke to Theo, um, a few weeks ago for, um, on the show and we yeah. talked a little bit, you know, about the inception of Wolfpack and kind of how that exploded in, in a way that was completely unexpected. Um, yeah. and you know, I've obviously like watched that happen and, you know, we were talking about how, you know, they, they came to Brooklyn Bowl. I think they'd played Rockwood or something. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you, were you at the first Brooklyn Bowl 
show with them? I wasn't at the very first. So it was okay. Rockwood, Brooklyn Bowl, yeah. and then Brooklyn Bowl again. And that's when I kind of joined in. Right. Okay. But I know that when they came to Brooklyn Bowl, Theo had like reached out to me and I just started hearing about the band and, and, uh, my friend at, at, at Brooklyn Bowl hits me up and he's like, hey, man, you know, this band Wolfpack, we we like kind of like decided to do a gig. We weren't sure, but it sold out in five minutes. We're adding two more shows. And then now next is going to be Central Park. And I ended up opening the show. Oh, yeah. You know, I was at my, those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. solo I was there. band. Yeah, so that was later. Um, yeah. At, uh, at Central Park. But uh, I was I'm curious, like, did you know about were you following Wolfpack? And then late, like, how did you link up with those guys? Well, leading up to that, we were already friends. Oh, okay, so okay. a couple years before that, we had been jamming and hanging out. So that run of shows at Brooklyn Bowl that you're talking about, the yeah. run of three shows in the Central Park thing, yeah. that was four nights in a row. Yeah. That was kind of when, when Jack absorbed me to be part of the band, got I guess. It, got it, And um, I had already done a few shows with them leading up to that. And even a couple years before that, was we were just friends right, and right. I was going back and forth between Minneapolis and LA a lot. And, you know, I had always just told Jack like, dude, what you're doing is super cool. If you guys ever want another person, I'm totally down. Yeah. Like I love what you're doing. And, and, you know, cause he, he had asked me to play on some of these other demos a couple times when I was in LA that I don't, I don't think are even out songs that he was working on. And Theo and I became good friends and, you know, same with all the other cats. I would hang out with Joey and, um, Dart, yeah, everybody. Actually, I didn't meet Woody until the Beautiful Game sessions because Woody was living in Austin, Texas at the time. Oh, okay. So he was never, he and he wasn't touring with Darren Chris, who's the artist that they were playing for when I first met them. So, right. um, yeah, it just happened really naturally. And funny thing about that Central Park show, you're friends with Emily King, yeah. and she is one of my favorite artists of all time. Yeah. So... Bernard Purdy was playing with us that week and we yeah. were all like, you know, kind of, oh my gosh, it's Purdy, it's Purdy, it's Purdy. I remember Yeah, it was, yeah. It was Purdy week. And I, I, you know, we had just gotten off stage and all of a sudden I, I just get done with this high of meeting Bernard Purdy and playing with Purdy. And then all of a sudden you walk back and Emily King and Jay Most are with you. I'm like, <gasps> it's Emily King. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was like nervous to talk to her. And she's so awesome. I mean, she's oh, one of she's my favorite artists. I actually just found a picture from that night of me, Emily, Jay Most, Theo, Joey. I don't know how he didn't drag you into the picture and um, Louis Cato. And I'm like, oh, damn, yeah. this is a beast of a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so fun. I remember that, that exact that exact thing very vividly. That side stage with the yeah. little trailers. And yep, yep. And I remember. Purdy in his suit. <laughs> and I think I don't even know. I, I honestly probably had a couple a couple tequilas in me at that point, and uh, you guys started playing something in the way she moves. And I think at one point in the night, someone was like, "Kras, like if you want to just jump up." Just jump up, you know, whenever. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but I was kind of like, you know, I usually want to know what's happening or get like, you know, set up first. or So uh, that song starts playing and I'm like, oh man, 
if they go into the solo section, I oh, got, yeah. I gotta go up there. And I think I went up there, and you and I and Theo kind of ended up playing like a harmonized yeah, version of the solo. I gotta find that <laughs> if it's anywhere on YouTube or whatever. But we I'm all sure kind of like we started playing it in unison, and then we all kind of broke off into harmonies. And I was like, oh yeah. That was a man. A fun that was moment. so fun. I, yeah, I remember <laughs> that. Like, you know, because I've been a huge. That was that was the first time I think that we actually officially met, and for yeah. sure the first time that we played. For sure. And yeah. I was so stoked because I remember being 18 years old, going to the Fine Line in Minneapolis. I was literally front row, standing right like two inches from your pedal board yeah. for a lettuce gig, oh, and. Cool. I like that week I had just transcribed Tuesday night squad or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, I've, I've been such a huge fan of your playing for years. So oh, that, man, that was, but I remember that moment so vividly. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. And then uh, we've ended up, you, uh, my, I think it was both times my trio was playing in Chicago and you came out and jammed with us. And then the night at the blue note yeah. where it was like you and Derek trucks. And it was like, I forget, I think Mark Whitfield was playing, sat in that night, but it was like yeah. guitar summit. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. Really fun. Really fun. And so you said Wolfpack is kind of like, so it's about 20 or 30 days a year, but like, is there, is that, that's studio included and rehearsal included. So there's really just a handful of gigs. We've been averaging, I don't know, eight to 10 gigs a year, something like that. So that's right. eight days given plus, you know, one day on each side for travel puts us at, you know, 24 plus a couple days. Ah, so maybe it's a few more than, and then we just basically add a couple days on the front end or the back end of whatever gigs we're doing for, for recording and the right. number of rehearsal days is literally zero. The right. band just never rehearses. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cause it does always, I guess it's mostly like festivals and, and bigger shows now. Yeah. Cause I usually am like, it's, I am a very like, you guys are on my radar in the summertime. You're like, Oh, well, thanks here. Like I usually, I run into you guys at least once or twice a summer, obviously not this past summer. Um, yeah. Due to yeah, the one before I think we you sat in with us at Lock In. Yep, at Lock In. Yeah, that was fun. That festival's great. Yeah, I love that festival. I know. I was pretty bummed that that didn't happen this year. I know. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your technique before before we we leave because um, sure I I've been checking checking you out obviously and. Uh, <laughs> the right hand technique is something that like, you know, there's a few guys that like Schmeens from Lettuce is is uh, such a beast on that. And I think you and him are like the modern guys that I know of that really can like play percussion legit. 
uh, on the sure. guitar. And I'm I'm curious, a how you developed that, and 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 b like who were the guy? I mean, I know you talk about Prince as yeah. a, a big influence. Um, wondering if there's some other guys that kind of like lit that fire for you as far as like rhythm guitar. Well, I think it actually starts before the guitar. It goes into some background of when I was in high school and as a teenager, I was big into drumline, like in marching percussion. So, yeah. you know, with that sort of thing, you know, if I'm the center snare drum player, yeah, I'm the one kind of dictating exactly where in the grid, I'm deciding where the bullseye is in the time. Yeah. And everybody's adjusting to fit to me. But if I'm not the center snare, if I have to listen inward to feel where the center snare drum, or that, where that player is putting the time right down the middle. And because basically any, the, the, with a marching snare or marching toms, the transients are so harsh and they're so obvious if it's a flam that you have to be right in time. So if there's six people, seven people playing this exact same snare drum thing, you've got to be so locked for it to just feel like one big section, one big thing. So I think my awareness of listening, my awareness of time, and the all that stuff came from the drumline thing. Interesting. And basically when I started playing rhythm guitar, my chops got so fast so quick with drumline because the you know the the types of exercises the type of practice regimen that you go through it just it streamlines you there right so i took the same sort of practice methods and chops building methods for the rhythmic thing on or for the marching drumming thing and i applied it to the guitar and taking those same exercises shifting accents around the grid or just down double down strokes triple down strokes um building things that way. And then what it did is, you know, it gave me a, a good way of being able to see a target and hit the target yeah. as far as timing goes. You yeah. know, so the execution side of things came from all the drumline and uh, the, the marching thing. Well, we both know that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have good time feel. Right, that just right. means you can hit a target every yeah, time, right? Yeah, yeah. So now the taste and the feel thing comes from where do you place that target? And where does it feel the best to put that target? So having the execution side of things, that's fine. But then listening to cats like Paul Jackson Jr., mm. Dave Williams, Prince, um, you know, so many people in, in that side of things, like the funk realm, Al McKay, um, David T. Walker, yeah. on that side of things, where are they placing things? What kind of parts are they doing? You know, where are the targets located and how can I hit those bullseyes? And then on the jazz side and on the, you know, funk soul side, listening to, well, more on the jazz side, but like listening to Pat Metheny, Schofield, Soul Live, Bill Frizzell, Pat Martino, mm. growing up with all that stuff as, as that influence. Okay, how do I take that stuff and apply it to what I'm doing here? drawing in those different influences to to get into uh kind of coming up with a sound you know right, and coming right. up with a time feel so i guess my right hand thing it it, it has more to do with the, the precision of the right hand has to do with the marching and the drumline stuff but all the decisions all the placing of stuff and the nuance of left hand comes from listening to 
so much music that, that influenced my decisions on, oh, why do I put this thing here? Where can I, the Prince thing is different than the Al McKay thing. Yep. The Paul Jackson Jr. thing is different than the Dave Williams thing. One's not necessarily better than the other. They're just different. Yeah. How are those nuances different? Okay, Pat Martino and Pat Metheny are very different in the way they do their thing. Pat Martino maybe is more, you know, it's the picking every note thing, yeah, yeah. the articulate thing, you know, and putting things into camps or whatever, for better or worse. Like your thing and the Schofield thing are similar but different. You know, you guys are more similar to me than what, than you are to a Martino or a Matheny. Right, right. But it's all kind of in the same world at the same time, you know, like if you're trying to compartmentalize. So, you know, when I draw those things, I kind of think in these worlds of, ah, how does this thing, how are these players, you know, uh, it's kind of sucks to categorize or feel like you're being categorized. Yeah, but yeah. we as humans, we just like to do that, right? So, yes, of course. you know, if I categorize my influences or a certain type of playing or a certain way of feeling the time while you're soloing or a tone that you use while you're soloing, then all of a sudden it, it influences my decisions on what I want to say through my instrument. Right, right. What, what can I draw from to say the thing I want to say? Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. Did you find yourself like playing along to records a lot? Did you have you played with metronomes? Is that like, are you playing with drum tracks? Like, what what is your preferred way to kind of like work out some of that rhythmic stuff? When I'm working on target practice, <laughs> yeah, it's the metronome. Yeah, okay. When it's execution, it's the metronome, and a lot of times it's a drum set metronome where it's yeah. literally this. Well, it's like a metronome, but a strong beat on two and four or something. Right. Just because most of the music that I play is backbeat oriented. But then, of course, that, that if I sound too mechanical or whatever, that's, that's a risk that I can take from that. So then it is playing along with records, playing along with, you know, a Prince jam. And I'll, I'll try to mimic his exact guitar part. It's like, yeah. oh, he feels time way farther ahead than what D'Angelo does, yeah. obviously. I mean, yeah. they're, they're like on opposite sides of the spectrum of where they feel the time. Yeah. And, and then listening to other people play Prince music, just paying attention, like, ah, that doesn't feel right. You guys are doing the behind the beat thing. Yeah, that's, not yeah. the, that's not the Prince thing. Or yeah, yeah. when people try to play, uh, try to play D'Angelo music and it, and it feels like it's leaning forward. It's like, yeah. ah, no, 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 that's, that's, that, that doesn't feel right. So yeah. trying to pay attention to those things yeah. then informs me to practice in a certain way. So I think some of the practicing actually has a lot to do with my listening and awareness yeah. and trying to, in, trying to heighten my awareness of, of where I'm placing things, you know? So if it's playing along with records, if it's um, just listening to records, that stuff is all super important only if I'm actually paying attention yeah. and, and have my awareness hat on, you know, yeah. but the target practice is its own thing. And that's me purely for technical execution, not necessarily for musical value. It's just to be able to hit the target I'm aiming at. But the awareness thing to me is, is a hundred percent as important 
as the target practice. How about you? What's what's your what's your what's been your method of practice? Like you know, in the la- in the past few years, it's funny because actually in the last few weeks of like talking to people on the podcast, there've been a lot of guitar players lately that I've been talking to, and I spend all my time writing. I mean, I've been in this zone of writing songs and and writing lyrics and like doing that where it's so much hammering and so much like conceptualizing that I haven't practiced guitar enough, you know? And uh, it's always, in the last couple years, it's always been like practicing for a gig or for a thing. Um, But I think I'm about to, I'm kind of like turning a page right now where I'm going to start practicing guitar. I mean, I have been playing some guitar. I've been playing a lot of acoustic actually. Um, and messing around with some open tunings and I've written a few, uh, acoustic songs and actually I've noticed it, you know, I've just listened just now before, um, we talked to your, to your like acoustic stuff that you've been putting out and also the meditations project with John Batiste, which was kind of cool because now I'm like a little more motivated to do this acoustic, um, project. I've also been like wanting to do more instrumental again. Cause like, even though I perform a lot of instrumental music, I haven't written instrumental music in, in years. Um, yeah. Cause my last few records have all been, you know, song oriented in terms of lyrics and stuff like that. Um, but yeah. And initially though, I mean, back in my, you know, I would always practice with records, you know, it started yeah. out with like Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and trying to get those inflections. Right. Like for me, it yeah. was, I, you know, I, Rhythm kind of always like worked well for me, but I'm not like you or Schmeens where it's just like like that, you know. So I, I kind of like when when I'm with guy like I can definitely play rhythm and I play rhythm on all of my tracks, you know. But like having Schmeens in a band with me for so long, kind of like I'd be like, oh, okay, you play that for a while, and I'd be like BB King, like I would, I would just come yeah. in and do my BB thing and. That's always been the thing that draws me in is like, and I love like, like funky rhythm guitar playing is one of my favorite things. Um, yeah. But as far as my playing, I've always like zoned in on that on, on guys like BB King and like, and Hendrix and like those little tiny inflections between the notes that make you feel a certain way um, have always been like, like, like to emulate singers, you know, that's always been kind of like my um, guitar, like to how I hear guitar, you know? Um, yeah. that's why like, you mentioned Schofield. I mean, he was like, and I was really into, to jazz too. And he was the guy, when I heard Schofield, I was like, wait, you can play blues or like yeah. rock and roll with chord changes. You know what I mean? And like have yeah. more in depth harmony happening. Um, and I think he's done that in such an, a cool way. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I've tried to find a new, uh, honestly, a new practice method. Because for so many years, I would listen to records and practice with records, um, and then like you know, occasionally lately, I've been like, you know, busting out like a loop pedal and trying to put some interesting chords together and like play over chord changes. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, you know, I've never practiced with a metronome. I think that would probably be good for me. But I've just. I've always wow, I, that surprises me. Your time is amazing. Oh well, thank you. I mean, I, I I've I've played with great rhythm sections. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I yeah, kind that, of exactly. And for me, like gigging has always been because I got thrust into gigging pretty young. You know, and yeah. where I just like played three hundred shows in a year, and like my development was so much based on that. Um, 
Because before that, you know, you it's funny because right now we're about to re-release some Soul Live stuff from like when we first, the day we met. Um, nice. Because we made a record that day called Get Down. Wow. And there's a bunch of outtakes, but it's been painful <laughs> to listen yeah. to. But it's, but it's cool <laughs> because it's a vibe, you know, and at this point... It's like fuck it. It it, it was a day, yeah. but uh, it's interesting listening back to that because but that that on the way to that session and gig, I bought a a, a hollow body because I I was playing a strat. I always had played. Was it the strat. Ibanez? Actually, it was pre Ibanez. It was a, called a Sebring. I got it for fifty bucks at a pawn shop. Whoa. Plywood guitar. It was on the first Soul Live recording. It was a plywood, like total piece of crap. Um, but it's got a vibe, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. super like paper thin. Um, but it's kind of got that old, like, you know, it's, you know, like Jimmy Nolan and some of those guys would use those like Sears guitars. Yeah. So, like I think about it like that, but I mean, at the time it was just cause I, I had 50 bucks, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to listen back to that, but, uh. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take some of your uh, some of your ideas and and see if I can st- steal a little bit for myself. Yeah, man. I mean, I I've also been in the same thing where I've been writing so much, recording so much. I thought, all right, like I normally will make one album a year, yeah, and that's that that's to me feels like a good amount. But obviously, this year's different because I just felt like I was on a creative tear, and there was no rules. 2020 had no rules yeah. to it, so. Yeah. Screw it. There's no expectations of me touring on these albums. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And if people are on board, they're on board. Fine. Right, if right. not, I'm totally cool with that. I think that's smart. A lot of people have been scared to put things out, myself yeah. included, um, because everyone around you is like, oh, you got to tour, you got to do this. But yeah. um, you also need to create, you know what I mean? And yeah. if you're in a creative mode, you should be putting it out. I mean, I, th- I love that you've put out all this stuff. And um, actually, like I put on the meditations and the acoustic stuff. Um, and, um, I'm like, like my baby, like went right to sleep. Oh, <laughs> the, medita- yeah. the meditations, when I put it on, he was like crying and he was like, this feels good. <laughs> I like that. So, uh, I love that. And I've been wanting, it's, it's inspiring to me too. Cause I've been wanting to put out a lot of stuff that's not in my normal, you know, thing that I've been like toying around with. So I think that's yeah. cool and inspiring to, to other artists. I've been telling a lot of other artists the same thing that I talk to. It's like, just put yeah. stuff out, but I got to listen to it myself too. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple questions? Yeah, sure. So I've noticed, so kind of my career path has been part of a band, doing the band thing, doing some of my solo thing, doing a lot of producing for other artists, being a feature on other people's stuff, having other people feature on mine. And in some way it's like emulating what you've been doing for a long time, like your career path. And you've got a lot of experience going down a lot of those roads. I'm just curious for you, what you felt has been the most, first off, the most fulfilling for you, but second off, like what do you feel for you keeps you going? Cause I, I feel all this creative energy. I don't feel yeah. like I need to slow down at all. Like I yeah. don't feel like, oh my gosh, I need a break. There's zero amount of burnout in me right yeah, now. Yeah. But I could see on paper, it seems like, oh, this this cat might burn out. Right. But again, I think I avoid it by only doing stuff that I'm excited about or that's fun. For you, like what's been the stuff that's most fulfilling and how do you how do you keep going back to the well? You know, I think exactly what you just said, you know, I I need to switch it up. I mean that that's so kinda it's funny that because I've been really inspired talking to you because one of the things you said earlier was that you've you've kind of hammered at this vision 
Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I really had a vision. I, I kind of, um, and I've always looked up to, to my friends that did like Derek trucks is such a great example. And he's been a good friend for over 20 years. And I've always looked up the fact that he was like, okay, I'm going to create this band. We're going to go on the road. We're going to hammer it out. And the, 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 the truth of it is I did get burnt being on the road, you know? So mm-hmm. when, when so live happened, we hit the road super hard. I did start and I loved the music and I, and I'm so grateful to those guys because they also kind of let, they let me go do other things and we all allowed each other to go do mm. other things. And I needed that because, um, I didn't feel like that one band like defined me. And I always wanted to like, you know, I was always like wanting to write songs and, and, and work with like rock and roll artists and make hip hop beats. I was always making beats and I was selling beats to rappers and I was always, I was heavily into that. And, um, I just wanted to do everything. You know, I think that's been my blessing and my curse is like, I didn't necessarily pick one thing and just do that all the way. Um, I've always wanted to kind of like, you know, I get inspired by, you know, an acoustic record and I want to go run and do that. And then the next day, the next day I like, you know, want to make hip hop records and I hear some, some sort of like Dilla and I'm like, Oh, I just want to make beats. Like, that's all I want to do. Um, and yeah. then like the other days I hear like Pat Metheny's solo album and I'm like, Ooh, I need to do that. So, um, I think that changing it up <laughs> constantly, um, has been great. And I think production really allowed me to do that. Um, I started producing records and that was like, oh man, I get to like live in this world that, you know, is not necessarily mine, but I'm a part of it, you know, for this. Yeah. And in certain cases, I'm like heavily a part of it where they're looking at me, like help me create this record. In other parts, I just kind of get to be there and guide it and push it this way and push it that way and implement certain ideas. Um, So like production and studio stuff has always been... um, something I'm like just so into and just endlessly interested in. Um, yeah. Like making a new song and blasting it. There's no other feeling yeah. in the world like that feeling, which I'm sure you know well. Oh yeah. Um, that, that, that feel like, you know, there's, it, it's rare that um, someone can create a piece of art and then like, hammer it at themselves <laughs> for like days like that's you know i'll listen to a mix like 20 times in my yeah. car and then i'll go back in my house and listen to it 20 more times and then i'll like dead it and probably never listen to it again honestly then the record will come <laughs> out and i'll be like whatever but yeah. um that excitement you know d- music just excites me i'm a fan is really what yeah. it comes down to i'm a huge fan of music and when i'm around artists that inspire me i'm just like over the moon you know i'm just excited static about it and that will never die you're getting yeah. in a van and driving eight hours a day that will start to wear on you um but making music never does so you know i'm thankful that the different projects that i've been in have allowed me to take off for a while and do that and then come back you know so live like sure. we come back together and we yeah, we're planning on coming back together this past summer and i know unfortunately COVID stopped that, but you know, we're always a band. It's like a thing where Mm -hmm. it's like, we're not none of, there's no quitting, (laughs) you know, it's just like, okay, we're going to go do this for a while. I'll call you like, you know, we stay in touch all the time. I talked to Al this morning. Um, but so I'm thankful that I've been in situations like that where my bands are my friends and they understand, we understand each other. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I'm just excited about music all the freaking time. 
You know, my wife thinks I'm completely insane. I'll come in here and like listen to the, listen to a track that I just found for like hours. You know what I mean? Um, and work on something minute for hours too. You know. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just excitement, man. I love talking to musicians too, obviously. Yeah. So this, this is like the quarantine has kind of like opened up a lot of things in a weird way, you know, cause it's allowed me to do this and ask people like you, um, questions and, and like, I've been probably absorbing more than anything from all this, you know? My last question I have for you. <laughs> I, love you I love how you turned the table on I'm trying on to turn me. this on you. Yeah. Well, because I, no, man, I, I, I love what you do and I, I totally respect what you do. So us having this time, like, you know, I always want to ask my heroes because, you know, I feel like we're in this, this flame where the type of stuff that I do now seems to be kind of in the zeitgeist with funkier music or groove, this type of music. Like, of course it's been around and it's going to be around, but it seems to be kind of hot. And, you know, a lot of people are worried anytime there's some level of success or, oh my gosh, all of a sudden it feels like Wolfpack blew up or my solo stuff is starting to take off. Like how to not have that just be a flame that just comes and goes Mm. and how you you know, th- we talked about the fulfillment side and, and how to stay, you know, into what you're doing. But I, I'm curious about for you and any advice you have to some of us that are doing the thing right now to not have it feel like this fast flame and how to actually have a, a longevity in our careers. Well, I think it's also something you mentioned earlier, which is um, do the things you're excited about. Um, cause when, like you said about posting things that are real, it's, it's just the same thing across, um, making records and making music and touring. If you're excited about what you're doing, um, other people will be too. Um, yeah. So I think that's really it. Uh, It's, and don't let yourself like get pigeonholed by anybody. You know, I think like, like you said, we're getting smarter as consumers. So it's like, if you're doing the same thing over and over because you know, that worked before, we're all going to see that, you know? So you have, it really comes down to you being excited about it. You know, it's like, as I kind of came away from funk music I mean, I love, I mean, I still make funk funk records, but it's like, you know, I did so much of that for so long. And meanwhile, you know, like I grew up listening to Crosby, Stills and Nash as much as I did James Brown. You know what I mean? So I have all these things in my head. Um, And that's just like where I was at and where I, and now I'm kind of like turning the corner and finding this blend where I'm like, oh wait, you can like write songs that are meaningful and harmonies and all this stuff and it can groove you know what I mean Um, and and I could you know you find your voice I guess what I'm saying is like let those influences show themselves or let your these new ideas show themselves and it's all part of this evolution Um, you know artists have to keep changing you know what I mean it's like if you can't just keep doing the same thing and but in you as a creator you'll never will you know, so I, it's yeah. really just being excited about what you're doing is, is, mm. is everything, you know, because then when you are, we are. Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> That's a good I, I need to. I mean, I say that all the time, but I also sometimes just need to hear it from other people, too. But yeah. OK. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, man. Well, I'm, I, that, 
<laughs> you're, you're the, actually, there's been a couple of people who have asked me questions on, uh, on the podcast, but that, those were good ones. Those were good ones. Well, obviously, I mean, I should mention that you have your own podcast, which uh, I do. Yeah. So people that are listening, go check it out. It's called Wong Notes. Yeah. And uh, how did, when did that idea come together? We actually had that idea before the pandemic. Yeah. And it was probably around January, February. I had a few guests lined up, a few things where I was going to interview a bunch of people in person and then pfft, that yeah. all fell yeah, apart. Yeah. That was, and that was, that was what I was hoping to do too. Well, I did yeah. a few like that and then we flipped to virtual. Yeah. Oh man. I got so much out of your mayor episode. I loved that one. Oh yeah. He's a smart dude, man. Yeah. And a really funny guy. I am such a fan of him too. It's, it's so fun to see his evolution as a musician and yeah. just the depth that he's, he's got it figured out, man. Yeah. And well, yeah. he's also just been figuring it out the whole time. That's why it's, you know, and I think that goes to show that that comes back to the thing we were just saying is like, you have to fulfill your creative needs. And sometimes, you know, you flounder in front of an audience, but that's part of the thing. I mean, not that he's done that. I'm just like, yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've had like some times where I've been like, Oh, maybe that was a little bit of a misstep, but I needed to do that to like figure out the next thing. Um, but, uh, I think he's just been, you know, pr- he's, he's become it. He's become, he's always been true to himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think like the grateful dead thing was so interesting to me because I, I loved that music growing up and then I started playing with Phil Lesh which was like this yeah. thing where a lot of people were like what are you doing playing the Grateful Dead music I'm like, I've been a deadhead for years but it's, no one would have really known that it was kind of a I didn't hide it but it was like but it was it was kind of cool to see him get into that and we kind of yeah. we started talking about it on the side like hey man you know da 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 and uh, now he's fully gone down the rabbit hole as I, oh, yeah. as I have. And so many other people that I, he's kind of like opened that up for all these other people, um, to, to actually check it out, you know, yeah. which has been interesting. Cause a lot of my friends and like that, we, you never would have imagined listening to the grateful dead or like hit me up. Like, bro, you ever listen to, you know, may 1978 and blah, 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 or whatever. Like, Holy shit, Jerry in 73, you know? And I'm like, well, who are you right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's been interesting. And I've been, I've been like super deep diving into like late sixties, stuff. And I think he, he's like, he kind of helped usher a lot of people into, um, that era. Not that like, I mean, people know about that music, but it's, uh, it's been interesting to see him embrace it. And as a result, a bunch of other people embrace it. Well, you know, what else is amazing is that that's like the best business decision ever on the, like for everyone, completely artistic decision (laughs) aside. Yeah. Yeah. Artistically aside, throw everything aside, the business decision on both sides, the fact that dead and co can tour in Chicago and it just doesn't conflict with the John Mayer show because the people that are going to see the mayor show are just going to go to the mayor show. The people that are going to go to the dead and company show are going to just go. And it, it helps both of them have this symbiotic, absorbing some of each other's audience. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it just never gets in each other's way, which is so cool. I know, cool. he did the same tour twice that one year, a few years ago, where it was Yeah, with like, Dead & Co. And, and then, then John he did Mayer. the same venues. Yeah, it's yeah. insane. Similar thing, 
Vince Gill joining Eagles. Oh, I didn't even know that. Dude. Wow. Yeah, you go see Eagles now. Vince Gill is in the band. It's a similar thing where... Crazy. You know, it, it, you get both of those things. That's and, interesting. You know, people that are going to go see Vince Gill are just going to go see him. People yeah. that, you know, want to hear Eagles songs are going to see see them. So, it, yeah. I've always... I've been keeping an eye on that. I was thinking, ah, I wonder... I wonder what bands I could join, what band like, yeah, I could join yeah. someday and, and, and do the same thing where it doesn't conflict with my thing, yeah, doesn't yeah. conflict with them, but it's very symbiotic and it would be really fun. Yeah, like yeah, you can yeah. tell Mayer has fun doing that gig. Yeah, you yeah. can tell Vince Gill has fun playing Eagle songs. Yeah, I mean, when you're playing these classic songs with the guys, yeah. with the guys, I mean, there's kind of nothing better. You know? I know. I mean, I got to jump into playing with Phil Lesh, and it was like right out the gate, we're playing in front of you know five thousand people, and I'm playing these songs that like I grew up on, and it's like in these theaters where they used to play, you know, and it's kind of like this mind blowing experience. Uh, it's insane, yeah. you know. But them doing it in arenas, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty it's crazy. incredible. Yeah. What are the what what would be some of those bands for you, man? That you're just like, man. This would be so fun to do this gig. Oh, I mean, but I mean, I got, it, I've gotten to do a few little tastes of things. I got to do a few songs on a bigger show with Earth, Wind, and Fire, and that ooh. was like, I mean, it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Maurice White. It was Verdine, uh, yeah, Phillip, yeah, yeah, and it was Questlove on drums, which was, wow. which was cool. Um, so, I mean, doing an Earth, Wind, and Fire gig, I mean, holy crap, that's like, yeah, and then like, you know, I've done a lot of these. We've done some together, these super jam things where you get to do a few. Yeah. So, you know, playing with Michael McDonald or like I got to play with Ziggy Marley on a and do it like, I mean, those are the, the guitar parts that I grew up on, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would love to do something, you know, like playing all the like Bob Marley music, man. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, on bass, really. Or on guitar. I mean, I, I mean, playing those bass lines, the Aston Barrett baselines that like defined my whole base world um, yeah would be epic uh there's there's quite a few though that's a really good question i need to make a list of like, yeah i know you of, know sometimes uh, you just gotta manifest that stuff yeah, like all right <laughs> yeah yeah that's interesting man yeah i mean i could you on the earth wind and fire gig man that would be epic that would be fun. Uh, if if that ever happened again, you know, like the Philip Bailey version. Maybe he needs to do a Dead & Co. with Corey Wong. Putting it out there. <laughs> putting it out there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's it's cool, though. But it's, 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 uh, it's fun to see, and I think this goes back to what you were saying before, and I think this also applies to your last question, which is um, playing with the greats and the legends, but also playing with younger folks. I mean, that's something I do as a producer as much as I can is work with young people. And, you know, not that I'm like a million years old, but, you know, I, I work with these like 22 year old, uh, super talented kids that like know production inside and out. Like you did, that didn't happen when I was younger. You know, it was like when I was younger, you, you sure. had to get into a studio. You had like, had to have like a record deal. Now it's like your studio is in your hand, yeah. in your laptop. And like when you, you're expected to know Ableton and Pro Tools and whatever, if you're a musician now. So it's like, it's interesting producing artists that know all those things and they can go in their computer and change. It's, it's good and bad because it goes back to the thing we were talking about where the options are so wide open that it can deter yeah. you from like getting your point really across. Yeah. Uh, and then like the production becomes 
uh, can sometimes take away from the song because you're trying to do t- so many tricks, um, and it's hard to find really long last like parts because no one's playing music together, so they're not seeing sure. how the parts play off of each other. Um, but that being said, I've also learned so much uh, being around young artists. So I think, yeah. you know, I think these. It goes like the Den Company thing is interesting because John's bringing this other perspective where he like grew up listening to music or not grew up but in the past went down that rabbit hole listening to music knows it from a fan perspective also brings this young energy and 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 it yeah. brings that and then they bring their energy to it just like you know you with your horn section um, and your guys and I think that goes back to um, how to stay excited is like having an interesting crew around you, you know, and having like a mixed crew, young, some young, some, some seasoned. Totally. Well, I hope we get to do something together. Speaking of that. Oh man, um, I do too. I would love that. It'd be really fun to do a track together or whatever, or maybe, maybe a gig together. Um, where we, where we put some, maybe we need to just put one of these bands together where we can be like, I'm into that handful of guitar player, like rhythm section, couple guitar players, yeah. Pick some tunes, jam, yeah. have some fun. Yeah, that would be great. And uh, what's what's your next release? I know you've released like five, is it five albums or five well, projects? Uh, we are recording this basically release day of an album. Okay. It's, well, but you know, by the time this podcast comes out, my album called The Striped Album will be out. But It will be out. Okay. Because I know you've been yep. releasing various singles and that's from yep. that greater project. Okay. Yep. So this... 2020s, eight albums. Eight. You yeah. know, I didn't intend. Yeah. I intended to do one. No, I intended to do two albums this year. Okay. And uh, a lot of times you'd say, oh, man, you're not getting the most mileage out of your albums because you're not touring them. You're doing so much at once. But at the same time, it's like, well, it feels like the most honest way to release this music because this is just where I'm at. This yeah. is what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. And if I stagger these releases over the next five years, I just might not feel this way or feel like this music connects to me at all. Right. And then, and then performing, it wouldn't be, you know, necessarily exciting. So I'm just doing stuff and then putting it out, man. It feels great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you are. It's been uh, great, like digging into it all. And I will be for months to come because I've just like scratched the surface. But in the last few days, man, it's been really, really cool to listen to everything and get Thanks, up to man. date. It takes a while to get up to date with you, man. It's a, it's I a, know, it's a, I know, it's I a project. Um, cool, man. Well, I have look, I look forward to hearing the rest of the album and really thank you for, uh, taking the time, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good to see you. I hope we can hang soon. Yeah. All right. Take care, brother. Peace. Later. I want to thank Corey Wong for being on the show. What a great dude and such an inspiring guy. Just works so hard at his craft, has the talent and the work ethic, which I always admire. So before we go, I'd like to play a song off of his new album that just came out. It's called The Striped Album. And this track is called Design featuring Kimbra.
by a wrecking ball of unsuspecting eyes. Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krasplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm